Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio is Nicholas McGaw, our Retail Banking Correspondent, and Miles Johnson, our Capital Markets Editor. While we'll also be hearing from Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. First, we'll be discussing the sharp fall in Italian equity and bond markets that's greeted the political uncertainty coming out of Rome and what this means for banks. Secondly, we'll take a look at expectations of a revival in banking mergers and acquisitions. And finally, We'll hear about Deutsche Bank's fiery annual meeting, as well as the German bank's ability to continue attracting thousands of graduates despite its well-publicised problems. So, Miles, thank you very much for joining us. Miles, you are Capital Markets Editor here in London, but you're perfectly placed to talk about the market reaction in Italy because you're heading to Rome to be the uh, Rome Bureau Chief. So tell us what's been the market reaction to the political events over the course of the weekend in Italy. Well, Martin, we've seen a very, this is obviously a very fast moving story. The market's now reacting to developments over the last couple of days where the Italian president has blocked the desired appointee for finance minister from the populist parties. And this has meant that their attempt to form a government has broken down. And now Italy will be facing fresh elections. And two weeks ago, people were basically thinking in the market, this was really no big deal. Markets were not moving at all. Then before the weekend, people were getting a little bit nervous and we started to see on you know, Thursday, Friday, some pretty sharp moves in Italian government debt and equities. And then following on from Monday, you know, we've seen some very, very pronounced moves where it costs more for the Italian government to borrow money for two years than the Portuguese government to borrow money for 10 years, which is really a very surprising move. People in the market are really trying to make sense of it. We've also seen increasingly people start to question what this means for the Italian banking sector. Yeah, I mean, yields on Italian sovereign debt have gone to their highest level in more than four years. Mm. So we're getting back towards the type of spreads on Italian debt, which is the difference between what people are prepared to pay for Italian debt versus German bunds that we saw the last time we had a Eurozone crisis, which was linked to Greece back in 2012-13. We're getting back to those sort of levels, are we? Or are we still quite far from those levels? I mean, the move in the two-year is pretty extreme. You know, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know, the so-called yield curve should generally mean that in a normal situation, it is less risky to lend money for shorter periods of time and therefore one would expect that the shorter end of the Italian yield curve would be not where these sorts of stress would be playing out. And what we are actually hearing in the market is that people are surprised that the Italian banks and institutions haven't really, this is all sort of anecdotal, but are not really stepping into the market at this point to buy. And that's something where there's actually, while it's a very liquid market, it's one of the world's largest government bond markets, 
there are not that many signs that people are really buying at this point. And there is at the margins sort of more speculative hedge fund activity of sort of betting on um, yields going up further. And so at some point, the question will be, you know, Italian banks are the largest holders of Italian government debt. At some point, these uh, institutions will probably have to step in and start buying. Mm. And why they're not doing it that now, maybe they think there's further to go. Yeah, I mean, this takes us to the issue of the so-called doom loop, which first came out with the financial crisis and was really exposed with the Eurozone crisis a couple of years later, which is that because banks are the biggest holders of their own country's sovereign debt, whenever that country has a wobble, as Greece did a few years back and now Italy is having, that immediately infects the banking system, if you like. And we've seen with a very sharp, you know, more than 5% falls in Italy's big banks today, that this doom loop is still alive and well, unfortunately, across Europe, because there's been a lot of talk at the European Central Bank and European Commission level of introducing some kind of limits or restrictions on the holding of your own country's sovereign debt. But that hasn't changed, has it? Yes, I mean, it's a very, very complicated issue where it becomes extremely politically sensitive, let alone financially complex to sever that sort of symbiotic relationship between countries, banks, and the health of their sovereign debt. And that's something where in Italy, it's particularly pertinent because of the structure and ownership of the Italian debt market, where it is very, very domestically owned compared to other European sovereign markets. You know, as we've discussed, there's a lot of um, the ownership is Italian financial institutions. And it means that some people will argue that basically Italy is able to finance itself. Unlike back in the sharper years of the Eurozone crisis or 2013, 2014, when you saw in Spain, you know, Spain actually was unable to finance itself internally in the same way. And Italy is different. So There's very deep pockets that. of savings and it's quite a wealthy, yes. northern Italy, wealthy country. But I guess this leads to the question of what happens with the Eurozone and particularly interest rates. I mean, there had been talk that quantitative easing by the ECB could be coming to an end. There could be tapering of that. And perhaps we're even talking about in the next year or so tightening monetary policy. This kind of throws all that up in the air, doesn't it? That's an extremely important point. So the sort of second level to this is beyond the immediate signs of stress. The bull case for buying Eurozone bank stocks is really fading fast. The sense of we not only have less positive economic data in the Eurozone, but this entire notion that the European Central Bank would begin to unwind, maybe at some point and sometime in the future actually start to raise rates, which would allow, you know, mm. banks net interest margins to rise, become profitable again. Basically, all of the things you want to see as a holder of European bank stocks, this is probably being derailed by the events in Italy. And we've seen shares in Santander and other big Eurozone banks falling quite heavily in response to this political uncertainty coming out of Italy. Miles Johnson, thank you very much. Thank you. Now moving to the issue of banking consolidation, starting with the US where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, joins us to discuss how the animal spirits are returning to the US banking sector, particularly after last week we saw Fifth Third Bank Corp of Cincinnati announce a $4.7 billion deal for Chicago's MB Financial. So Ben, does this mark the return of big banking deals? Well, we've had False starts before, um, since the crisis, there's been a couple of waves of M&A picking up. But I think you can say this time that something is definitely stirring. Uh, There's certainly lots of chatter, lots of analyst notes saying this is it. 
They're pointing out that you've got pretty strong platforms. You've got high share prices up about 50% for the uh, sort of mid-sized banks. Since Trump won the election, you've got lower taxes and, and crucially, you've got lighter regulation. Perhaps we could talk about that later. All that's allowing banks to plot moves that they've long dreamed of. America, let's not forget, still has thousands of banks. Uh, at the last count, I'm just reading off my screen here, 5,607 federally insured commercial banks and savings institutions at the end of the first quarter, according to the FDIC. And that's down about 60 from the quarter before. And consolidation is a secular trend. The number of banks halved over the past 20 years, and they'll probably halve again over the next 20, according to Barclays. That's because more banks are looking to cut costs by combining. But there's definitely a sense now that something's stirring. On the day that Fifth Third announced its bid for MB, there was another couple of Chicago land banks of a similar size, Wintrust and First Midwest. They all saw their stock prices rise about 3% on the day of the deal. So do regulators seem to be encouraging this revival of banking mergers? The short answer here is yes. Since the crisis, there's been a strong sense that any move that would make a bank bigger, more complex, more tougher to police would be frowned upon, particularly by the Federal Reserve, where there was a strong cadre of sort of anti-big bank people in charge there. Everyone thinks back to the merger between M&T Bank of Buffalo and Hudson City, based in Paramus, where I'm from, New Jersey. That took about three years to get over the finish line. That was delayed by concerns over the strength of M&T's anti-money laundering systems. But over the past year or so, there's been some subtle moves to remove some of these barriers. Last summer, the Fed lifted the combined size threshold that would trigger a very deep regulatory probe of any merger from 25 billion assets of the combined bank to 100 billion, so quadrupling. And the Fed now is considering changing the ways it grades banks' management teams, moving from a five-point scale to a four-point scale. In practice, if you do that, you perhaps bump up some of the people on a grade three, that's less than satisfactory, to a grade two, which means satisfactory. And in the past, if you've got a three rating, that's an effective bar on doing deals. So that keeps many would-be acquirers on the sidelines. And then finally, on the regulatory front, there's S2155. That's the big bank relief bill that's just been signed into law by President Trump. The main bit of business is a lifting of the size threshold that denotes a systemically important financial institution from 50 billion assets to 250. And the effect of that is to free many of these regional banks from the tougher constraints that apply to the likes of J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America. That's tougher capital, liquidity standards, tougher leverage, lending limits, mandatory risk committees, resolution plans, as well as that annual stress test, which has caused so much stress in the past. Now, banks up to 100 billion get instant relief, and those from 100 billion to 250 get relief in stages. But either way, it's an active incentive to get bigger. Fifth Third, for example, with 142, is right in that sweet spot. Provided it keeps its nose clean, it could go all the way to 250, without a significant step up in regulatory costs. And what do investors think about the prospect of banking deals a decade on since many of these big deals among banks ended so badly with the 2008 financial crisis? Uh, Yeah, there's uh, still a fair amount of scepticism out there. Shares in Fifth Third fell about 8% on the day of the announcement of the MB deal as investors saw that the bank was paying quite a high price, $2.70 for every dollar of book value. And even with some very aggressive assumptions on cost-cutting, the acquirer expects to take seven years to earn back that premium. That's about double the timeline of similar deals in the past. And it's not going to be easy to squeeze out those extra cost savings. Fifth Third already has a couple of efficiency programs on the go. It's doing a big round of branch closures, and somehow it's got to keep the business still running and growing by cutting about half of the cost it's acquiring. But even with all that, the shares are still higher now than the turn of the year. 
I think investors are taking a step back. They're looking at other aggressive expansion moves from big banks in Ohio. Recently, you've got Key Corp, Huntington Bank shares. They're two very deadly local rivals. They've all done multi-billion dollar deals in the past few years. So I think at this stage, the fear of overpaying is not as great as the fear of being left behind. Thanks very much, Ben. We'll definitely be watching that trend over in the US. But there's also talk here in Europe about bank M&A. And Nick McGaw is here to discuss that. Nick, it seems as though deal making's back in favour here. The Financial Times reported last week early stage discussions by Barclays about a potential £60 billion tie up with its rival Standard Chartered. Is that right? Yeah, so already over the last couple of weeks and months, there'd been a lot of talk around deals on the smaller end of things, more in the challenger bank space. But then last week's report moves up. It's a totally different level. That would be a huge deal. And there's a couple of reasons behind it. Partly on a Barclays specific case, they've put a lot of big challenges behind them recently. It's kind of the first time in a good couple of years that they can actually start thinking about more transformative ways to try and grow and make more progress. It's also a small matter of an activist investor and an activist investor that makes this particularly important at the moment as well. But as a broader topic, there's a kind of defensive side to it as well. Because it's not just uh, in the UK, we talk across the Eurozone, people have been keen on it for dealing with the kind of changing tech landscape, plus the potential, there's a lot of worries about big tech players like Amazon and Google coming in and directly competing. And again, there's a sense that you're just going to need the size and the scale to be able to keep up with them. We heard from Miles earlier about the market concerns about Italy and the political uncertainty coming out of Italy and what that potentially means for the Eurozone. Doesn't that make banking consolidation more difficult if the Eurozone runs into trouble and there is political paralysis? Yeah, it does make it a lot more awkward than maybe things looked even a month or so ago. I mean, people have been getting quite optimistic about the Eurozone and Eurozone banks in general. I mean, if you wanted to create a kind of big pan-European bank, the logic behind that only really makes sense if you can sync up all the regulation across the Eurozone. And the EU has been pushing for this for years, but the EU moves slowly on these sorts of things at the best of times. And if you've just got a very Eurosceptic government coming in charge of the third largest economy in the Eurozone, it's not really the best time to push for a big next step in integration, which means any hopes of anything imminent in the Eurozone might be going on the back burner a bit at the moment. Well, certainly if there's another election on the cards in Italy, then the uncertainty will continue for a few more months, putting any big banking deals on the back burner, I would think. Thank you very much, Nick. Shifting now to our final item and joining me down the line is Lauren Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, to talk about Deutsche Bank, one of our favourite topics on Banking Weekly podcast. Laura, it's been another big week for Deutsche. What have they announced this time around? Deutsche has announced yet another round of cuts. Um, They would say it's not a new strategy. It's an enhancement or an acceleration of the existing strategy. As we expected, the cuts fall heaviest on the corporate investment bank. That's where the new CEO, Christian Seving, has indicated he will focus. They're talking about a total of more than 7,000 job cuts. They're also going to be cutting the balance sheet for a corporate and investment bank by about 100 billion euro. Most of that will come from the equities business. And they have also committed to better cost cutting targets for the entire bank. Now, in terms of what this means, investors are saying it is a move in the right direction by Deutsche, but they're not overly wowed by the magnitude of it. So if you think about the cuts to the corporate investment bank balance sheet, the cuts are equal to 10% of the total corporate investment bank balance sheet. So that's not really going to move the dial financially. The key thing Deutsche is trying to do here, particularly within the equities franchise, which is where a lot of this attention is focused, is they're trying to keep the business as complete as they can so they can keep as much of the revenue as they can. 
and that is really limiting them in terms of how much they can actually cut from it. So I think investors need to be convinced that this is actually a material thing and that this is going to make the investment bank less of a drag really for Deutsche. Even with all of that, the annual meeting wasn't exactly a happy affair, was it? I think certainly the shareholders who attended Deutsche the AGM didn't seem to be overly pleased with the bank. I mean, it was quite a long AGM, as these things always are, but it was also quite a fractitious AGM. There was, of course, a motion to dismiss the chairman, Paul Ackleitner. 99% of those in the room voted in favour of actually keeping him, but he certainly took quite a bit of fire on the day. I mean, there was one investor who showed him a literal red card, and I think the overall mood was a pretty grim one. So I think Deutsche certainly has a lot to do to convince investors that it is going to manage to get the bank to that return on equity in the double digits, which is looking pretty far off at this point. And I think if you look at what the Deutsche share price has been doing, it fell 4.8% on the day of the AGM to 10.38. That was actually the lowest level since October 2016. So certainly people are quite concerned about the share price. And the new CEO, while he's trying to say, listen, I do have a handle on this. I do have a plan. We are going to a good place. I think people remain to be convinced on that. Yep. But having said all that, Laura, as I think we've reported this week, Deutsche continues to attract graduates and they had uh, 110,000 applications for their 2018 graduate programme. Yeah, I think it really was surprising to learn that Deutsche had 110,000 people applying for their graduate programmes because, I mean, there's only 97,000 people working for Deutsche. So that's really a massive number of people that actually want to come to work for the bank. Now, realistically, it's going to hire a very small portion of those. But I think it is somewhat encouraging that they are still managing to attract talent at that level. Now, Deutsche isn't an outlier. I mean, their numbers are up 20% year on year. Some of the other banks that we also spoke to for the piece, they also saw increases. Not as big as Deutsche's, but there was an increase of 8% from one of the other banks, of 12 from one of the other. So I think a lot of banks are seeing a rise in the number of graduates who are actually applying for their programmes. Now, obviously, there's probably quite a small percentage of those people would actually be people Deutsche would consider to be true candidates. And that's probably the same for most of the banks. But to have such a big pool to choose from is something that they would probably welcome at this point. I thought all the talent was flocking to tech companies these days. Is it back with banks now? I think the flow of talent into banks has certainly changed since the financial crisis and you'll see executives saying that and what they're saying is that while in the pre-crisis era they were really getting a lot of applications from the Ivy League schools, from the Oxford schools, from the really top tier universities and their MBA class in particular, now they're getting applications from a more diverse range of places. And you could think that's a bad thing, but equally you could argue that the fact that banks have had to cast their net wider and a number of them have got various programmes that allow them to recruit beyond the top tier and far, far beyond it, that that actually is going to deliver them a better talent pool. Because if you think about it, heading into the financial crisis, banks had been really trying to fill as much of their bench as they could from these really top tier schools. And they still ended up in the mess that they ended up in. So you could argue that actually having a more diverse talent pool come into the banks could actually be a good thing. And finally, on Brexit, are there any signs of how that's affecting demand for graduates in London? We did try to get some information around hiring and Brexit. We weren't able to get it from many of the banks, but in the case of one of the banks, UBS, they told us they had a significant increase in the number of graduates hired in London this year. They said that was because of business demands. The other banks, we got the impression it was pretty much business as usual, so it didn't seem to be that there was a mass exodus or that there was a pullback in London hiring, as some people thought might come ahead of Brexit. But equally, we didn't see anybody else who certainly told us that they were taking on significantly higher numbers in the UK ahead of Brexit, because there is an awful lot of uncertainty for banks. 
obviously it doesn't matter so much if you're hiring for a summer graduate but if you're hiring for someone for a permanent graduate role and you're hiring them in the UK and you think that your operations in the UK could materially change in just under a year's time that's going to really affect how you want to hire that person. Thank you very much Laura. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Nick, Miles, Laura and Ben for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.